0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth, for the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we always make it a practice to have a few moments of silent prayer. So that you can make sure that you're in fellowship, 1 John 1, 9 states, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whenever we sin, we are instantly out of fellowship. We lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, Scripture says. When we confess our sins, we are instantly restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in our spiritual life. It's necessary to be filled with the Spirit, to understand the Word in order that it's converted and is usable for our spiritual growth. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that we would be uh, open to what your word teaches, that we would be responsive, that we would be able to concentrate and focus under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. pray, Father, that we would be uh, responsive to the challenge of your word to uh, renovate our thinking according to the absolute standards and instructions of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we'll continue our study in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, and we will conclude our study of Daniel's prayer here in the first 19 verses of Daniel 9. Daniel is praying this prayer as an, as an ...intercessor for the nation Israel. He is standing in their place seeking uh, God's uh, grace. He is challenging God to let the people return to the land on the basis of his studies in Jeremiah and in Deuteronomy. Daniel has recognized that they were to be out of the land for 70 years due to the number of uh, Sabbaths that they had failed in sabbatical years that they had failed to to follow. Under the Mosaic law, every seventh year was a sabbatical year, and during that sabbatical year, no one was to work. They were not to work in the fields, and they were to let the uh, fields go fallow, And it was a time when the nation would be trusting God. That was the whole purpose of both the Sabbath one day a week as well as the sabbatical year was to exemplify nationally that they were relying upon God to take care of all of the national needs. Now they had failed to trust God by following the sabbatical year concept for a number of years. We don't know how many. There have been a number of different speculative schemes trying to work out just exactly which years were involved, but none of them, uh, fit any precise biblical pattern. We do know that for this, that there were 70 years and that since a sabbatical year occurred once every seven years, that comes out to 490 years. Now that is going to be important, that figure of 490 years is going to be important for understanding the and interpreting Daniel's uh, vision called Daniel's 70 weeks starting in verse 24 and we will begin that next week, one of the most important and impressive prophecies in the Old Testament. That is a prophecy that truly helps us understand that God has a future plan for Israel and the timetable involved in the coming of the Messiah, as well as some important information related to the tribulation and the Antichrist. But that's next time. Tonight we're going to finish up the prayer where we have seen several and learned several important principles related to prayer. And one of those has to do with the importance of confession. Confession is not something that was related simply to the Old Testament. Now, in terms of understanding confession, a couple of points I want to make, because these things, I find, are not brought out and not clearly understood by a lot of people. There were two problems that you could run into in the Old Testament as far as sin was concerned. One had to do with ceremonial uncleanness. And this had to do with the ritual and ritual worship in the temple or earlier in the tabernacle. Then on the other side, we have the problem of personal sin and national sin. Now these must be kept distinct because, for example, in the Old Testament you could uh, touch a dead body or be in the presence of a dead body or touch something that had just touched a dead body and you would be rendered ceremonially unclean. There were many other things that could render you ceremonially unclean, but we'll take that as a, as a good example because there's nothing inherently immoral or unethical with touching a dead body. So you could touch a dead body, and the reason these things were were uh, uh, made a person ceremonially unclean is because they usually were associated with death or in some other way with the consequence or penalty of sin as outlined in Genesis chapter 3. And so what God is emphasizing in the ceremonial or ritual law is that just about anything man does is contaminated by sin and affects his relationship with God. As a result, then, of coming into contact or violating any of the ceremonial laws which rendered a person ceremonially unclean, he had to follow the basic uh, stipulations and prescriptions in the law sometimes this involved uh waiting uh, a waiting period of 6 or 7 days uh, other times it was uh, less than that but it always involved a sacrifice and in the old testament that sacrifice was either a sin offering a sin offering or a guilt offering and this was designed to bring ceremonial cleansing to the individual so that then he could come and participate in the rituals in the temple. On the personal side, if you committed personal sin, or in the case of Daniel's prayer here in Daniel 9, or a number of other prayers in the Old Testament, including Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, national sin, you confessed sin. For example, when David uh, sinned with his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then the cover-up where he conspired to ki- have her husband Uriah killed and did have him killed, so he's guilty of adultery, uh, conspiracy to commit murder, and murder. When he confesses his sin in Psalm 51, he, he admits his sin. He says to God, "...against you and you alone have I, sin- have I sinned." Why? Sin may affect other people, and it certainly did in that case, and it had tragic consequences on a number of people, not the least of which was Bathsheba and Uriah. But sin is a violation of God's absolute. Therefore, every sin, no matter what it is or no matter how many people it affects, every sin is primarily directed toward God because it's a violation of his character. David confessed his sin in Psalm 51, and there's no record that David is going into the temple and offering a sacrifice. Now, he would have had to do that the next time he went into the temple. But there's a distinction between these two, and the reason is that the ceremonial and ritual practices are designed as visual training aids to teach us about what's going on in the arena of personal sin and national sin. In the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the temple or tabernacle, and on the day that the high priest was uh, inaugurated into his role, he would be washed completely. He would take a complete bath, and this was a symbol Doesn't mean he was saved. I'm sure there were high priests in the Old Testament that were not saved. This does not mean he was saved, but it symbolized it. He was washed from head to toe, and that is a symbol of the fact that at the, and represents the fact that at the instant of salvation, we are all completely cleansed from sin. We are positionally cleansed from sin. And then each time he would go into the temple, he would come to the uh, laver, and he would wash his hands and his feet. He only had to have the complete washing once. But every time he came into the temple, he would have to wash his hands and his feet, and that again symbolized the necessity of continual cleansing from sin in order to be able to go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So there we have the two, the, the the emphasis in the Old Testament. Now some people have come along and said, well, because Christ was the end of sacrifices, Christ was the end of the law. There is, and He paid the penalty for sin completely. There is no need for a confession of sin in the New Testament. In fact, that's just legalism. And then they uh, usually interpret First John one nine as a salvation verse. The problem with that is that after the tribulation, when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming and establishes the millennial temple, as Al- described in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 47, there is a return to an animal sacrificial system in the millennial temple. Now, the, the without going into all the details, it is not the same as the Levitical system. One important uh, realm of sacrifice or category of sacrifice is missing in the future millennial temple. And that is atonement sacrifices. The sacrifices that are emphasized are the guilt offerings and the sin offerings. And the reason that these are present once again in the Old Testament is not that they are effectual for salvation or for cleansing. Remember, we have to keep that original Distinction, that there's a difference between ceremony and ritual and the personal reality. People receive personal forgiveness from sin without the sacrifices. But the sacrifices were designed to teach a lesson, and that took place inside the the tabernacle and the temple. In the millennial kingdom, there will be a Levitical priesthood, descendants from Zadok, And in the Zedekite priesthood, these are descendants from those who survived the tribulation. And because they survived the tribulation and have not gone through physical death and glorification, they will still have a sin nature, and so they will commit sins. And so for this Zedekite priesthood in the millennial kingdom to come into the presence of God in the millennial temple, they are going to have to go through the ceremonial cleansing. Now, the point is that if Jesus Christ's death was such that it rendered a necessary confession of sin or dealing with, with uh, uh, sin after salvation and having cleansing from sin after salvation, then you, it wouldn't be necessary to have a uh, millennial sacrifice or a sacrifice in the millennial temple for cleansing then. so. In the future, there's there's cleansing. There's cleansing in the past in terms of the age of the law. There's cleansing in the future during the millennium, and that indicates that there must always be some sort of mechanism for cleansing from sin after salvation. It's not that sin causes us to lose salvation, but sin affects our fellowship with God and our ability to have access to God. Therefore, in the church age, the issue is confession. Now the key word then in 1 John 1-9 is the issue of, is the word cleansing. And that is necessary. Remember in the Old Testament model and in the Millennial Temple model, you have two important things going on along with this. You have a temple and you have a priesthood. And in order for the priesthood to function in the temple, there has to be cl- cleansing ongoing cleansing for for ritual purification in the same way in the church age our the body of the believer is the temple of God the Holy Spirit and every believer is a priest unto God that means to function in your priesthood in relationship to your temple there has to be ongoing cleansing from uh, post salvation sins so this is what is exemplified both in the in uh, the Old Testament and in the future millennial temple and the church age is no different. Confession, though, is often misunderstood. It is not some matter of trying to impress God with how sorry we are that we sin, because, as I keep saying over and over again, God knows you're going to commit that sin another 6,000 times. So he's not impressed with your sincerity when you try to uh, convince him you'll never do it again. You're so sorry you committed that sin. And... Uh, God is All God wants is for us to admit or acknowledge our sinfulness. Now, sometimes, though, we go a little long before we confess our sins, and we do commit certain sins that bring about a, an emotional response. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that the emotion of feeling sorry for your sins or the emotion of shame is not the issue. That is simply what God, that that public humiliation or private humiliation is simply the means that God is using to get our attention that we need to uh, deal with the sin in our lives. And so last time I concluded by looking at the doctrine of shame, and I want to review that again briefly before we go on, because this is something that people have a lot of trouble with. That trouble stems from two things: number one, we think that somehow we need to manufacture feelings of guilt or shame whenever we sin, and that's false. God is not impressed with our superficial approach to sin just be too often though um, we just we are um, not ashamed of sin, and that that's because we've committed that sin a thousand times. We're going to commit it a thousand more times, and so we need to recognize we're not going to necessarily uh, be as shocked over that as we were the first time we committed that sin. And so we don't need to be worried about the fact that or try to generate feelings of guilt or feelings of shame over that sin. That's not a problem. On the other hand, we don't need to... Uh, uh, Try to manufacture something to impress God. But sin and, I mean shame and embarrassment is often related to sin in the Old Testament and God again and again emphasizes that Israel should be embarrassed, humiliated, and ashamed because of their idolatry. And this terminology is almost always used in relationship to the idolatry of the nation Israel. So let's just review this. Uh, briefly, and then uh, once again I want to address the sixth and final point. But the first point is that God does bring shame on the believer who disobeys him, and this is seen in Jeremiah 2.26. Jeremiah 2.26 says, "...the thief is shamed when he is discovered." So the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. And here there's the emphasis on the leadership, that the leadership should be ashamed because of their failure to le- correctly lead the people, and the fact that the leadership was as involved in, the, uh, in idolatry and rejection of Bible doctrine as the people were. So the first point is God does bring shame on the believer who disobeys him. Not always, but there are times when he does. Second, that shame is part of an intensification of divine discipline. Remember, there are three stages of divine discipline. There is, first of all, warning discipline when God is simply getting our attention because we need to deal with the sin in our life. We need to confess, and we need to uh, get back in fellowship and move on. If we are uh, somewhat uh, hardened and callous to that warning discipline, and it does not have its proper effect, and God is going to turn the heat up a little bit. He's going to move from maybe a switch to a two-by-four to a two-by-six in order to get our attention, and that's called warning discipline, and God is going to continue to intensify that warning discipline until he gets our attention as believers, and if he doesn't, then it moves into the third stage, which is dying discipline. So there's three stages of discipline. And when life begins to fall apart for you and you go through uh, various stages of suffering, you need to pay attention to the fact that uh, maybe it's because God is bringing some discipline in your life. It may not be, but that ought to be something that you pay attention to. Warning discipline, intensive discipline, and dying discipline, Jeremiah 6.15 Scripture says, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. This is a an indictment on the nation Israel that they had been in idolatry for so long that they had uh, been calloused in their souls so that uh, they were no longer even ashamed or embarrassed over the idolatry in the nation. God says, they did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall down among those who fall. At that time that I at the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. So God uses shame to uh, bring discipline to wake us up, and then if that fails, He intensifies it to dying discipline. Third, shame is public humiliation in order to enforce humility. See, sometimes we're, the problem with ongoing sin is always arrogance. And when we are arrogant, then we think that we can get away with whatever the sin is in our life, and we think that we don't have to deal with it, and that somehow it's just okay, that, that it was paid for at the cross, and we come up with all kinds of rationales to justify our sin. But then God has to do something, if that continues for a lengthy period of time, sometimes God is going to publicly humiliate an individual in order to teach them humility and that they need to rely upon him and bring bring them back to grace orientation. Jeremiah 3.25 states, let us lie down in our shame and let our humiliation cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. This is a recognition on the part of Israel of their sin. We and our fathers since our youth, even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. So shame is used by God in order to enforce humility. Point number four. However, the end goal is not shame or embarrassment per se. See, some people want to wallow in that. If you have a trend towards asceticism, if you have a trend towards a self righteousness, then uh, perhaps you like to wallow in your humiliation and in shame. That was what motivated a lot of the early monastics. That was a movement of asceticism that began in about the 3rd century A.D., and perhaps its most extreme form was the the group that was called the Pillar Saints. And these were people like uh, Simon Stylides and a number of others who would go out in the Egyptian desert, and they would sit on top of a pillar, sometimes for years, in order to impress everybody with their humility, And uh, people would come from uh, miles, hundreds of miles around in order to hear uh, their words of wisdom. And as the years went by, they would increase the size of their pillar and that was a way to, to indicate it was sort of a, and then they would also get involved in wearing a, a camel hair shirts inside out, so it would be extremely uncomfortable. Some were involved in self-flagellation where they would go into the caves and they would whip themselves, all of this in order to uh, self-inflict humiliation and shame because they thought that that in and of itself was a sign of spirituality. But God merely uses the shame and the embarrassment as a means to an end if we are resistant to discipline. So shame is designed to get our attention, Ezekiel 16:63, in order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done. So God uses that to get our attention and to teach us to keep our mouths shut and humble ourselves uh, to, for the teaching of his word. The issue is not shame or embarrassment. The issue is to confess our sin and to move on. And confess means to admit or acknowledge guilt. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. It doesn't mean to try to uh, bargain with God and to, to ask God. The scriptures do not say ask for forgiveness. The scripture says confess your sins and God will forgive you. So we are to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to him and uh, and move on and then at the instant of confession of sin we're restored to fellowship and we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now the sixth point is one that has come to mind more and more in the last couple of weeks especially as we watch this this horrible uh uh scenario unfold on television related to uh, the Roman Catholic priesthood and the pedophilia and the sexual abuse and everything else because we live in an age when there are a number of people who have grown up in situations where, when they were victims of sexual abuse, when they were victims of physical abuse, when they were victims of pedophilia, and often people who come up in a background like that feel are very embarrassed, they have a sense of shame, and this is something that that, that hangs over them for much of their life. That is a problem for them. The principle here is that when you have done nothing wrong and you're the victim of a crime, then you have no reason to feel shame. Now, you might, but you have, that's a problem, that a test that you're going to have dealing with your own sin nature. You have to learn to apply doctrine to that and realize that that was a particular uh, problem that you faced in life. Other people face other problems in life. We all live in a fallen world, and God's grace forgives us from anything that we have done. But in those situations, there's nothing that, that you have done, and so you need to learn to apply God's word to that situation And move on. God was fully aware in eternity past of any and every problem we face in life. No matter how horrendous, how awful, no matter how terrible it may be, no matter how overwhelming those feelings might be at some times, God knew about those in eternity past, and he made a perfect provision in his word giving us promises so that we can deal with situations like that. And uh, that is exactly what we have to do. And so the principle is that there's a couple of situations when it is wrong to feel shame. One is when you've done nothing wrong and you're simply the victim of some crime or sin like child abuse, rape, or sexual abuse. The other time in which it's wrong to feel shame is once you have confessed your sin. I don't care how terrible the sin was. I don't care how horrible it was or how public the humiliation. We all know that there are times when people commit certain acts, certain sins. Everybody knows about it. It's right out there in the open. And it's easy to kick yourself and go on a pity party and uh, beat yourself up for weeks and months and years to come. But God's word says that once we admit our sin to God, it's over with. God forgives us. God forgets the sin. He removes it from us. And every time we get involved in in uh, pity parties, every time we get involved in feeling guilty over that, what we are in saying in effect is, God, you really didn't forgive me. I have to uh, help out in the situation by feeling sorry for this. So it is a sin to feel guilty about sins that we have already confessed because at the instant of confession we are forgiven. And all we're doing is trying to uh, dredge it up again, and that is the path to uh, self-destruction and all kinds of emotional problems. Now, Daniel prays, starting in uh, verse 7, we read, O Lord, righteousness to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries, that is those who have been scattered outside of the land in the diaspora, to which you have driven them, and the, the, the verb there indicates that God has active, actively drove them out of the land, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you, and that term for unfaithfulness will take us back to the Mosaic law. What we must understand is that Daniel's prayer is grounded in an understanding of God's covenant with Israel. And I've said this again and again. You have to understand that the Mosaic Law was a covenant, a contract, between God, party of the first part, and Israel, party of the second part. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, and he was the end of the law, so that the Mosaic Law is no longer in effect. It was one document, one whole, one, it had its own in, internal integrity, but once Israel, uh, it went out under 70 A.D., and when there's no nation Israel, when Jesus Christ ended the ceremonial aspect of the law, the law became null and void. It was no longer in effect. Now, it was interesting. I had a question when I was out in Cincinnati this last week. Somebody asked the question, well, after I taught that, say, well, does that mean we don't have to obey anything in the Old Testament? Well, yes and no. Uh, we don't obey what's in the Old Testament in terms of the Mosaic Law because that's not for us. But every key principle in the Mosaic Law in terms of moral and ethical standard is repeated in the New Testament except for uh, the command to obey the Sabbath. But we, murder was not uh, made wrong because of the Ten Commandments. Uh, adultery was not made wrong, made a sin because of the Ten Commandments murder, adultery, thievery, lying, false witness, were all wrong from the instant Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, The Mosaic law was simply the constitution, the legal code for the nation Israel. And in that code, God promised Israel that if they obeyed the law, God would bless them in certain ways. If they broke covenant with God, if they were unfaithful to that covenant, then God would discipline them. And God outlined five successive series or cycles of discipline that the nation would go through. And the most extreme form, the fifth cycle of discipline, was that God would remove them from this land that he had promised them, this land that was supposed to be the land of of, uh, milk and honey, a land, a place of blessing, and God would take them out of the land, and that would be a sign to Israel and to all the nations that God was punishing Israel. So what what Daniel is saying here is that because of the unfaithfulness, that is, because they broke the Mosaic Covenant, they are outside the land, and God drove them outside of the land. And then in verse 8, he reiterates this same principle. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, or that is, open shame. It's an idiom in the Hebrew for, for visible shame and embarrassment. To us, Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Notice. The parallel with what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah two twenty six, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets. So it is clear from the vocabulary in nine eight that Daniel has uh, has saturated his soul with the word of God in terms of the scroll of Jeremiah. In verse seven, we read that. Um, to this land which thou hast driven them, we have to look at four reasons why God cast them out of the land. First, God cast them out of the land because of negative volition. They had rejected God's word. God's word was not a priority for them. They would rather be involved in any of the details of life than be involved in uh, going to listen to Jeremiah teach the Bible and responding positively by applying Bible doctrine in their lives. Second reason that they were Taken out of the land is given in Jeremiah 17, verses 1 through 4. They were involved in idolatry. Idolatry is, as Scripture clearly uh, describes in several passages, idolatry is merely a subtle form of demonism. It is, uh, always gets man involved in depending upon himself for his own solutions. It introduces a, a false scale of values and, in fact, it emphasizes slavery to the details of life. And this is seen in Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 12, actually. Third reason they were taken out of the land is the primary reason, and that is the rejection of the sabbatical law. They rejected the seven-year observance of the sabbatical year, as described in Exodus 23:10 and 11, as well as in Leviticus twenty-five, three and four, Second Chronicles thirty-six, twenty to twenty-one, and Jeremiah twenty-five, eleven and twelve. Let me give those to you again. Exodus twenty-three, ten and eleven, Leviticus twenty-five, three and four, second Chronicles thirty-six, twenty to twenty-one, Jeremiah twenty-five, eleven and twelve, and Jeremiah twenty-nine ten. Fourth reason is that they were trying to solve their problems through human viewpoint techniques and not divine viewpoint techniques. Now, for them, the human viewpoint technique was they were going down to Egypt and entering into uh, alliances with the Egyptians in order to uh, handle the military threat from Nebuchadnezzar. Now, God had set aside Israel as a unique nation so that Israel would demonstrate to all of the nations that they could face and handle all of their problems simply by relying upon God alone. When they started relying upon other nations and looking to foreign alliances for their uh, for for their security and for their safety, they were rejecting God and they were operating on human viewpoint. That's no different than today when Christians rely upon all sorts of uh, secular helps, such as uh, secular psychology, in order to try to solve the problems we face in life. We'll run into the same problem and enter into divine discipline. And uh, with Israel, they were taken out of the land. So in eight. Daniel says, Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. So this is a great example of confession, outlining sin and taking personal responsibility for sin. Then in verse 9, To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Now, in this passage, we have the use of the word compassion, which is the Hebrew word rahamim. And the I-M ending is a plural of intensification. And it involves an intense form of compassion. And this is the application for Daniel of divine mercy and grace. See, what Daniel is relying on in this prayer is God's grace. This is an example of grace orientation. He understands God's grace, and he is going to appeal to God's grace as the basis, as one of the bases for answering prayer. He says, to our God belongs compassion, and secondly, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the result of his grace, and this is the Hebrew word salach, which means to forgive and to forget. See God's forgiveness is such that He is not going to bring it up again. It's not going to be an issue. He will wipe the slate clean. Just a, one of the biggest problems that Americans have, I think, is understanding what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness means it's it's in, in the New Testament it uses some terms uh, synonymous to forgiveness that are related to um, to economic terms. Like forgiving a debt. We still use it that way. You forgive a debt. If you owe me a $1,000 and I forgive that debt, then that means that that slate's white queen. I don't come back six months from now or a year from now and say, well, what about that $1,000 you owe me? That's what forgiveness means. It implies forgetting it. But forgiveness is a personal thing. It is not a judicial term. Forgiveness is a relational term so that if somebody commits some crime against me, I am responsible as a believer to do two things. To forgive them, which is a personal term. I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to react in bitterness and vindictiveness. And secondly, I'm going to make sure they're prosecuted to the full extent of the law because they're a criminal. That's justice. There is a difference between justice and forgiveness. You forgive a, you can forgive a criminal, but that does not mean that they are no longer judicially liable. In fact, the reason God is able to forgive the believer for his sin is because prior to that forgiveness, Christ dealt with sin on the cross judicially. First, the judicial payment is dealt with, then forgiveness, which allows us to have a personal relationship with God, enters into the picture. And those are two separate categories. And see, most Americans don't have a clue uh, about the distinction there. And I was uh, kind of caught off guard yesterday. I was watching uh, one of the news shows, and they were talking about this, um, what's going on with the Roman Catholic Church right now. And they were interviewing an extremely liberal lawyer from Southern California, one of the top feminist lawyers in the country. And um, she had, though, what shaped her views was, like most liberals, what shapes their views, their personal experience, not absolutes, was that she had represented seven victims of of uh, abuse, sexual abuse from priests. And so she one of the things that came in as a question was, well, there ought to be forgiveness for one of these cardinals because he's admitted that he... That he did wrong, and she came back and she said, "Well, forgiveness is great, but he broke the law, and so we need to prosecute him to the full extent of the law." I kind of shook my head and thought, "Well, maybe I need to uh, completely reevaluate all of my views here because I'm in agreement with this individual." Well, it just shows that a uh, that just like a stopped watch is right twice a day, someone who is a uh, flaming liberal can be right on occasion. Forgiveness, though, is a, remember that, forgiveness is a personal, a relational term, and it is not the same as justice. And because ju- justice was taken care of on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Therefore, we can, on that basis, have uh, forgiveness, which is a personal application of that in our relationship with God. When God forgives us, he removes our sin from us. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That means that when you sin, no matter how much you shock yourself, and no matter how much you shock your friends and family, when you confess that sin, God forgives you and he forgets it and removes it from you. And when you bring it back up, either in memory or uh, by feeling guilty over it again, you're basically saying simple confession wasn't enough that you have to add your own uh, pity party to it in order to impress God. Isaiah 43, God states, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So God is the one who removes that sin for us as far as the east is from the west, and these are two verses that you should commit to memory, especially if you have a problem with always feeling guilty over your, over your sins. The emphasis here is grace. What gives Daniel the courage to pray like this is the fact that he is grace oriented and he understands that the basis for Answered prayer is God's grace, and so he is going to uh, maximize his dependence upon God's grace, and he is going to take advantage of God's grace, and he's going to exploit God's grace, and that's the mark of a mature believer. I always find it amazing when I run into believers who are um, uh, hesitant to really ask God for anything, and that just shows they don't understand grace, and usually they're too impressed with themselves and... Um, and they don't understand the dynamics of grace. God wants to give things to us. We have not because we ask not, James says, and we often ask not because uh, we have a false understanding of God's grace. I always remember this episode that happened with the pastor I grew up under. Uh, George Meisinger told me this story one time back when George was in seminary, and he and his wife were down in Houston, and they were house-sitting for the pastor. And this was back in the uh, mid-60s when uh, a dollar was worth a lot more than it is now. You know, $10 back then would buy about what $100 would buy now. And so as the pastor and his wife and family were getting in the car to head out for vacation, the pastor got out of the car and came back to him and said, George, you know, here's George as a poor seminary student, says you're probably uh, going to be a little strapped for cash. And he reaches in his pocket and pulls out a wad of bills and peels off $200 bills. That was a lot of money in 1965. Hands those bills to George, and George is saying, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to give me anything. And a pastor looked him in the eye and said, if you don't accept this, you don't understand grace. And if you don't understand grace, you'll never make it as a pastor. That's a great lesson to learn. Too many people are hesitant to ever accept a gift. And if you won't accept a gift, you don't understand grace. Because that's what salvation is all about. It's a free gift. And God wants to bestow free gifts on us. And, and that's just an illustration of grace, orientation, and what that is all about. Now, in Daniel 10, Daniel goes on with his confession, and he says, Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. That is, they did not listen to what he said through his prophets. We have uh, not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings. That's the application. They didn't obey them, and they did not walk in them. You see, you can't obey, obey what you don't accept and you, what you don't believe, and you can't apply what you don't know. So if you don't know something, and you haven't listened, then you won't obey it, and you won't op- apply it. And he says that uh, we did not obey the voice of the Lord our God. They refused to listen to the prophets. We did not obey the voice of our Lord to walk in his teachings. They rejected doctrine. They would not apply doctrine, uh, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. And in essence, what he is saying here and in verse 11 is a recognition of Israel's national sin. I want you to notice that he includes himself in this confession. It says, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law. It didn't matter if, if Daniel, who wasn't a part of that, who had not been involved in the idolatry, Daniel, who is a young man, was positive to the word. Daniel still includes himself because he was part of that culture, and they were corporately guilty. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, notice he includes himself in that, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Notice once again, sin is not against the people you have offended sin is always against god because sin means to violate his standard it is sin is not a violation of human standard or human law so he is reminding god about the fact that he has uh, that the nation has disobeyed god uh, as god had warned them about in deuteronomy chapter 30 and so he is calling god back to those promises in deuteronomy 30 that if the nation turned to him then they would be blessed. Deuteronomy thirty, one through six reads, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. This is what Daniel is praying for, national restoration of all of Israel from captivity. Now, he's not going to get it. Because all of the nation isn't turning back to God. Daniel is standing as an intercessor, but the nation is still primarily negative. So only a portion of the nation is going to return to the land in 535 B.C. and, in fact, before our Lord returned. You do not have a complete restoration of Israel to the land in the Old Testament. God had promised, though, that he would restore them from captivity, have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the people. See, that didn't happen. He did not restore them from all the peoples, but only some of them. From all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Since this is promised and hasn't yet been fulfilled, we know it must be fulfilled in the future, and there will be an international, a complete international regathering of the nation in the future. Deuteronomy 30, verse 5, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. That means there must be a future restoration of the nation in the land. But notice this restoration is not talking about what's going on today, because this is talking about the restoration of a nation that has turned back to God completely. We must make a distinction between the return of some Jews to the land, a partial regathering of an unregenerate or unsaved nation that uh, must be there for the, at the tribulation, and the regathering of a saved, regenerate people, which takes place at the end of the tribulation. But as we will see next week and the following week, there are promises in the scripture of two international regatherings that take place in the future. One is a nation regathered in unbelief, and one is a nation regathered in belief, and both have to be fulfilled and have not yet been fulfilled. I think we are what we see today is perhaps a, a fulfillment of the regathering of the nation in unbelief when daniel uh, Deuteronomy thirty verse six says moreover the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants that 's talking about salvation that 's not today 'll we'll circumcise uh, your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. Now in Daniel nine eleven, Daniel says Israel has transgressed thy law, and that's the Hebrew word avar, which means to pass over, to take away, or to cross over. That means they have crossed the law; they have uh, disobeyed the law. It's a different word for sin than those that were used in verse 5, and it means to cross over the Torah or to break the Torah, to break the law. When he states in here, they have transgressed, that is, we have crossed over thy law and turned aside, that word means to departing from the obedience to the law into uh, disobedience. And this would, of course, bring in the cursing that's outlined in Leviticus chapter 26, And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when he says, So the curse has been poured out on us, that is the curse of Leviticus chapter 26, all five stages of national discipline. Then in verse 12 we read, Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. And that refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. I'm reminded of our Lord's words in Matthew 24 that when he refers to the coming tribulation, he says there was never any destruction like that in all of human history. So uh, this destruction in 586 B.C. is simply a, uh, a, a, a pale representation of what will take place in the tribulation. In verse 13 and 14 we read, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. See, he recognizes that even though he's turning to God, the nation as a whole is not seeking God's grace. That's where what it means, have not sought the favor of the Lord our God. The word favor there means grace. That the nation is not turning to God, but he is on their behalf. And then in verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And here he recognizes that divine discipline is a manifestation of God's righteousness and God's holiness. So this is the end of his national uh, confession. And we are reminded briefly here of the reasons why Christians suffer. There are six reasons why believers suffer and four reasons why unbelievers suffer. First of all, believers suffer because of the fall. Because we are all living in a fallen world and we are fallen creatures, we all suffer. Second reason we suffer is because of rebellion toward doctrine. We reject doctrine, we disobey God's specific mandates, and the result is suffering, self-induced misery. Third we suffer because we're associated with others who are being disciplined, either family members or businesses or in a nation. Even though we may be obedient to God as Daniel was, because he was associated with a nation that was disobedient, he suffered. So we have cursing by association. Fourth we suffer because we are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in Satan's world. Because you are a believer, you have a target on your back for Satan and the demons to attack. Fifth, there's sometimes there's no other way to learn certain doctrines. We have to suffer because that God puts us into those testing situations so that we can learn to apply doctrine. And then sixth, The sixth reason believers suffer is as a testimony to unbelievers, other believers, and to angels. Now, those last uh, three do not apply to unbelievers. The first three apply to unbelievers, and a fourth reason applies to unbelievers, and that is that God is using suffering to get their attention to the cross. Now in Daniel 9:15 9, through 19 we have Daniel's petition. Daniel's petition. He states verse 15 and now O Lord our God who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself as it is this day we have sinned we have been wicked so he repeats his confession but he says focuses on what God has done historically. He reminds God of what God did in the Exodus. That God brought out a special people for himself, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, so therefore God had a purpose for this nation. So he is reminding God of the Mosaic Covenant, the establishment of a special relationship with Israel, and a special uh, purpose for Israel. Then in verse 16 he states, O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, Let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city, Jerusalem. Notice how he is arguing here. He is presenting a case before God that because God had a purpose in Israel, he should complete that purpose. In the eyes of fallen mankind in general, it would be a travesty if God continue to discipline Israel. So he is not arguing with God, Lord, do this for me because I deserve it, because I'm nice, because you know we've been miserable for 70 years. He is saying, Lord, your character is at stake here. You called us out with a special purpose, and you need to fulfill that purpose. So he goes back to God's promises. He goes back to the foundation of the covenant, and he presents an airtight case to God for why God needs to act on behalf of his people. He argues in terms of God's stated plan for history and for the nation, and he argues in terms of God's character and the testimony of his actions to the nations. Verse 17, he says, So now our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications, and for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. In other words, he's praying to God, to bless the nation, let them return to the land and rebuild the temple. Then, in verse 18, oh my God, incline thine ear and hear. He's calling upon God to pay attention. Uh, he's using an anthropomorphism here because God doesn't have ears and God doesn't have eyes, but He is calling upon God to give Him His full attention. Oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by thy name. Notice the emphasis. Jerusalem is a city called by God's name. Jerusalem has a special plan and purpose in God's, uh, or God has a special plan and purpose for the nation Israel. And it is not a, a city that has any, any history in Islam. We'll hear a lot of talk about that today. But Jerusalem is mentioned over 700 times in the Old Testament, and it is not mentioned once in the Quran. He calls upon God to pay attention to the city which is called by thy name, for we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own. In other words, I'm not arguing for my own life or just to make life easier for us or to get back home but on the basis of your promises and your character, on account of thy great compassion. So he appeals to the grace of God. And then in verse 19 he states, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. So he grounds his whole petition ultimately in the character of God, specifically God's faithfulness to his promise and God's grace. Now, I want to close this morning by looking at one other prayer in the Old Testament that is very similar and another crucial prayer in the history of Israel and will provide a bit of a backdrop to what uh, we'll study in the next section in Daniel 9. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, that's back a ways in your Old Testament prior to the Psalms. Uh, after 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you have Ezra, then Nehemiah and Esther. Historically, Nehemiah takes place, uh, some hundred and almost 130, 140 years. Let me see, it would be about a hundred and, uh, not quite a hundred years, about 90 years after Daniel. And Nehemiah is still in, uh, the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah becomes very concerned because he is uh, is the cupbearer. That was a position of responsibility. By the time of Nehemiah's life, it was almost like being a prime minister. He, like Daniel, had a very high position in the kingdom because uh, the cupbearer was one who was basically a food taster to make sure that the king would not get poisoned. But over the years, because, of course, someone like that had to be someone you trusted, uh, he became a confidant and a counselor to the king. So Nehemiah receives word at the first part of the chapter that things are in, in pretty much a mess back in Jerusalem. They haven't rebuilt the walls. The, and uh, the walls of Jerusalem, we read in verse 3, are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. Notice he has the same sort of emotional response that Daniel did because of sin. So there's nothing wrong with that, it's just that that doesn't necessarily impress God. He wept and mourned for many days. He was fasting and praying, just like Daniel. He he just sets aside the details of life to focus on studying the scriptures and praying, building an airtight case before God so that God will act. Verse 5, he says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Notice he does the same thing Daniel does. He prays to God and argues with him on the basis of God's promise. Incidentally, this is uh, back in verse 1, it's the 20th year in the reign of uh, of uh, Artaxerxes, and this places it in 444 BC. Now, that's an important date because that's the date that we're going to uh, see is important in the uh, starting point of Daniel's 70 weeks. Uh, verse five, verse six, he says, "Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open." Notice the similarity in verbiage with Daniel's prayer. Be attentive, your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them... Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Notice, he is reiterating the argument of Deuteronomy 30. He's doing the same thing Daniel did uh, a little over 100 years earlier in Daniel chapter 9. He's arguing on the basis of God's promise and God's covenant. And that's a principle for us that when we pray to God, sometimes it's necessary for us to set aside the details of life To formulate a good, well-structured, well-thought-out prayer and to really investigate the scriptures so that we can use the promises of God's word and his character in order to uh, implore him to act in a certain way on our behalf. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power. That's a reference to the Exodus again. And by your strong hand, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So we will see the answer to that prayer uh, next time as we get into our study of Daniel's uh, pre- Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks. But that sets us up for the future because it is, Dan- it is Nehemiah's prayer that is going to kick off the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, this evening to see once again your faithfulness your grace to understand how important it is for us to rely upon your faithfulness and your grace in our prayers, for us to understand that it is your promises that form the foundation of our uh, petitions and intercessions. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things, that we might uh, uh, focus on having a, a more substantive prayer life. We pray this now in Christ's name, amen.